Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This week, we're talking about how Charlottesville's history of racial injustice has made many people of color in our community particularly vulnerable to the pandemic and the economic distress in the region. We call up Elliot Robinson, editor at Charlottesville Tomorrow, local freelance journalist Jordi Yeager, and the content manager and digital strategist for Vinegar Hill Magazine, Sarad Davenport. So we have some new voices on the podcast this week. Would you all mind introducing yourselves? Sure. This is uh, Sarad, born and raised in Charlottesville, went through city schools, and I am uh, working on this project. I'm Jordy Yeager. I'm, uh, I'm a journalist in town and grateful to be working on the Determined series with Sarad and Eddie Harris and Elliot Robinson and the whole Charlottesville Mall team. We grew up pretty much together in the same era. Both went to city schools. So for folks who aren't familiar with Vinegar Hill Magazine, can you tell us a little bit about it? What are some of the stories or works you've run in recent issues? Um, the whole idea around Vinegar Hill Magazine is to create a more inclusive social narrative. I think that sometimes there's frustration, particularly in the African-American community, around you know, media and publications and, and other outlets not being inclusive of a full story that includes the stories of determination and resilience and triumph of people from the African-American community um, and others and other peoples of color and other marginalized communities in this particular region. Vinegar Hill, as some people may already know, is a community that existed in Charlottesville that was raised and demolished and it was the primary epicenter for African-American culture and commerce in the early to mid 1900s in Charlottesville. So it it really is just a, a celebration of that time period in Charlottesville, which was more like a golden age, particularly for the African-American community. And this is just to kind of commemorate that time, but also to, also to extend it into action going forward. So one of the things that you all did in this first installment was connect data and breaking news to people's lived experiences here. So to start off, what has your experience of this pandemic been like? You mean my personal experience? Yeah, your personal experience, your family, your community. So for me, you know, it's a little bit different because you know, I'm from Charlottesville. I'm born and raised in Charlottesville, but I, I currently am in the Northern Virginia area. So I've been really pretty much on lockdown and, you know, working from my home office and, you know, I have children. So I've been doing homeschooling. My life partner had a job interruption. So layoff. So, you know, we're experiencing some of the same challenges as others with regards to income interruption children being at home from school and just trying to take care of our health. So I haven't been exempt whatsoever. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I've been able to kind of self-quarantine for the most part, but as a journalist, I realized that I had a lot of relationships, you know, professional and, and just kind of acquaintance relationships of people who do really important and necessary work. And so I found myself kind of in this unique position of being able to connect people. One of the things that I did was start to support Seville 
uh, as a way for people to connect the dots and find resources as well as try to get more affluent and wealthier people to have a way to donate and support the causes directly. Honestly, from a mental health standpoint, that just kept me sane because I just, you couldn't pay me to sit still. It's uh, one of those things where I just needed to do something and be, be active in that time. So the article we're going to talk about is called Determined to Work, and it's just the first in a series of articles you all are working on. What is the series about? The, the series centers around the social determinants of health. And the social determinants of health are these kind of ecosystem factors that contribute to life outcomes for folks. And those social determinants are neighborhood and built environment, health and health care, social and community context, education, and economic stability. People in the health profession and, and what they believe is that these are the things that contribute to overall health and well-being from a systemic level. And if these things are, are strong and in place in each category, then what you have are strong communities and healthy people that are thriving and functioning in society. And so the idea is to really hold the system accountable or the systems accountable that are really impacting people's life outcomes, but also to celebrate those folks who have been resilient and determined in a broken system. Sarad's one of the most humble people I know. And so what, what he didn't say is that he's been working in and around social determinants of health as a main focal point of his professional and, and uh, I mean, really just his, his whole life and work for more than a decade. And so, you know, this is something that is, I think, being increasingly studied and increasingly verified by data and deep dives into kind of uh, the longstanding patterns and trends in social determinants of health. But it's not anything new to people who live and breathe it on a daily basis. And the series is looking at how to bring that off the page and, and to, into people's worlds in a way that they can relate to and in a way that actually opens a window or a door to have more equity within those social determinants of health. Can you all give us an overview on how COVID-19 is affecting our area when it comes to race and socioeconomic status? Uh, it's it's disproportionately affecting African-Americans here in compared to white residences in just stark terms. And so, um, you know, this is not unique to Charlottesville. Obviously, it's happening all over the country. One of the things that was really stark to me uh, was looking at the overall number of cases in the area. So for our health district, it's about 355 total cases. Um, and within that, uh, there are 104 African-Americans who have it. And so that's about 20 percent of our population. But in this region, African-Americans only make up about 13 percent of the population. Uh, so that's more than twice as high as, as what would be racially proportionate if, if all things were being equal. So again, that speaks to the racist nature of how these systems are divided. And so what stood out to me in that number was, okay, well, if this proportional, right, what would that actual number be? And it turns out to be about 48 people. So, you know, it, it's a little bit uh, of, of a leap, but not really to say that, you know, out of 104 people, uh, you have 48. 
who actually, you know, uh, predictably should have gotten it and uh, 104 total have gotten it. And so, you know, that, that actually puts a human cost, a human face on uh, what is actually at stake when we're talking about the brokenness of these systems. Um, and you see that number spike uh, even more up to three to four times as high uh, when you look at hospitalizations. Doctors have told me in my reporting that, you know, this really speaks to, to longstanding health uh, issues that have gone unaddressed. Can you lay out who has been most impacted financially by this pandemic in our area? It's people who have always been financially impacted, right? So so one of the things that we explore in this piece is looking at how our job sectors have never fully been desegregated and that that pans out and, and, and plays out over long periods, right? Generations. And within that, you get the accumulation of wealth, you know, or lack thereof, you get the accumulation of assets. And so when you put a crisis like the pandemic of, of COVID-19 into that pre-existing water, that situation is exacerbated. Um, and you find that, you know, the people who are required to show up to work um, in food services or uh, in retail professions are most vulnerable. They're most exposed. You add to it that a lot of people have pre-existing health conditions that make them even more vulnerable than that. And so it's just a compounding factor. So, Yeah, your article goes back to 1865. Could you talk about some of the examples that you give in how the employment sectors here have always been segregated? Sure, yeah. So looking at that long arc of history, you know, it affords a certain perspective. And there's no such thing as painting with a broad brush when you're looking at history. It's very nuanced and complicated. Definitely is relevant to say that there have been black millionaires, there have been huge black property moguls. You know, John West owned over 100 properties by the time he was uh, 50 years old and he was born into slavery. Like there have been strong black professional and and middle class and and upper income uh, sectors of Charlottesville, Um, you know, dentists, doctors, lawyers. That certainly is a very real part of Charlottesville's history that hasn't been celebrated. I think a film that, you know, Sarad and Tanisha Hudson worked on, Legacy Unbroken, is the beginning chapter of telling that story. That being said, a lot of the day-to-day work of Charlottesville's operationally used to be in the industrial sectors, coal, agriculture business, the service sectors of um, maids or housekeeping, of child care, um, of, of these sorts of types of jobs uh, have been reserved for Black residents. And most of those jobs have historically not paid as much of a living wage as the white jobs. Um, and so we took a look through the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center at uh, the census records and looking at what types of jobs do people hold, how much did those pay, um, and then you know looking at a, a large portion of the population to try to get, okay, was this a fluke or was this really common? a sense of of what was happening in Charlottesville. So we looked at the 1920s, the height of Jim Crow or the racial era of terror, and then also looking at 1940s, you know, the end of the uh, progressive New Deal period, um, and then jump forward uh, a couple generations to the 1990s um, to look at uh, UVA as the largest employer uh, here in Charlottesville that has the most concentrated population of African-American workers and how they're be, they were treated in 1990s, which if you talk to a lot of folks really hasn't changed all that significantly in terms of them being relegated to the bottom rungs of, of the employment ladder, um, of, of being kept from promotional opportunities. I served uh, last year on the the city manager's working group on um, kind of equity. Um, And we looked at the city's staff numbers and 
Um, you know, there are more than a thousand employees in the city, and this holds true in the city as well, right? Every every sector, every department um, has a breakdown by race and by promotional opportunities, and um, this holds true for every single one of them, of uh, black employees not being paid uh, as much as white employees and not being given the same promotional opportunities. Um, so in this way, it's it's never been desegregated. Yeah, so can you connect that history to the health outcomes that we're seeing? I, I, I can always center it around quality of life. If you've been systemically discriminated against with regard to wages, access to healthcare, the amount of time that you have to work, like when you have to work more often and longer days to achieve a wage that is considered living. Not to mention, you know, you know the other impacts of um, trauma around racism and things of that nature, then it's going to have an effect on your health. And that contributes to those poor health outcomes for, for marginalized communities, particularly people of color, Black people around hypertension, diabetes, all of these things are related. That's the reason that we talk about this, how many things happened in the past, because it is just, it's so cumulative. It set the stage for the pandemic being as bad as it is with communities of color right now, because there was that systemic racism. There was a generational uh, poverty. There has just been this generational trauma. It's like, and it leads to all of these other issues that we're already putting people at a disadvantage that now here's this pandemic that's coming down that's also affecting people's health. And there's just all these other things that were going on to begin with. So can you tell me about some of the people that you talked to for this article? What was their experience of the pandemic like? I've talked to at least two dozen people so far, probably more. You know, this will be a series. And so not every voice makes it into one article, but every voice informs that piece. People's privacy, people's reputations, um, people's pride, obviously, you know, th- these are elements that were repeatedly mentioned to me as I was talking to people about the hardships and, and challenges that they're finding themselves in. This is a very sensitive time too. And so um, as a journalist, how we message or how we put that story out, we want to be very sensitive and, and not further their harm, not further harm them. Just to say that up front, there, there are several people in this initial piece that uh, we chose to look at, and uh, you know they they represent, I think, very common job sectors. They do jobs that a lot of people depend on and uh, and use, um, and are in a variety of circumstances. So some are unemployed, uh, some are underemployed. They've been cut back. Um, some are unable to access unemployment insurance, um, and so they they are having to access um, funding through other mechanisms, um, GoFundMe's grants. Uh, you know, helplines, these sorts of things. And in this particular piece, you know, we, we spoke to a, a 48-year-old uh, young man from, from Charlottesville, grew up here, uh, ran track in high school, was, was an all-star track star, and, uh, and is now working two jobs or, or was working two jobs before the pandemic hit. Um, one of those has been discontinued, and so he's down to three days a week at his second job, but he's got a family to feed, he's got rent to pay, and it just doesn't cut it. And so uh, looking at and exploring those those significant challenges and, and how the systems don't really budge in the ways that you need them to. He's, he's not able to access unemployment. His, his landlord hasn't given him any sort of leniency in terms of when he can pay rent, that the bills don't go away. And then talk to another 
woman who has worked for uh, one of our governments. She's worked there for 30 years um, and she takes care of her parents and she lives with her husband. Her husband was out of work uh, for about six months because of an on-the-job accident. Um, he had just gone back to work uh, the beginning of March, just found a job. So that six months they've been operating on just one income where they're used to, uh, you know, operating on two incomes. And so, you know, it was it was just that, that light at the end of the tunnel that he got another job. And then, of course, the pandemic hits and because he's one of the most recent hires, uh, he finds himself laid off. Um, and so, you know, looking at how do they survive? How do, how do they make ends meet? Um, they're doing things that I think a lot of us uh, who aren't aware of those things take for granted. And that if we knew, we perhaps would make uh, different decisions about how we value their jobs. So for people who are working in essential jobs that you talk to, do they feel safe? Are any of them being compensated for additional risk? No, not that I'm aware of. You know, there's a very a varying level of personal protective equipment that's been afforded to people in, in uh, these quote unquote essential jobs. It is uh, by and large an incredibly risky work environment and uh, they don't feel that they have a choice. I've only seen one instance um, in my reporting so far where uh, an employer has actually increased people who are on the front lines, has increased their wages. Um, and uh, everybody else has either, you know, even gone so far as to decrease, saying that they need to, you know, watch their bottom line and they, they have to, you know, have cutbacks and you're lucky you have a job and these sorts of things. So, yeah, I think people are, are less safe and feeling that uh, lack of safety abundantly. To what extent do you think the pandemic has exposed racial disparities and for whom? You know, when I was talking to Quentin Harrell, who's the chair of the Minority Business Alliance through the Chamber of Commerce here, he he made the analogy to um, an angiogram, which, you know, for any for any non medicalese people out there, it's when you know a doctor or a medical professional puts a uh, a dye um, in in the body, uh, so a color a color a soluble solution that um, then on an X ray will allow something to show up in in contrast to another thing. And he was comparing the the dye as being the pandemic and the body as being kind of uh, this this racist uh, society that we've we've operated in and create and, and lived. In. Um, and and that the die of the pandemic is really allowing all of it to be seen for what it actually is. Um, and so, um, as Sarad was saying, that this is very much exacerbating existing uh, circumstances and um, and potentially making them much much worse for people. And um, that this is uh, in the same light an opportunity to show people the starkness of. Uh, racial disparities in the systems that produce them, and how each of our individual decisions and actions collectively uh, create these behaviors and patterns. Um, and so to really try to break them down in terms of looking at, okay, what could we do differently? If these are the outcomes that are happening and we know that we don't want them or we don't agree that they're fair or just, how can we gen- then change course? Hopefully, this isn't the first time that their eyes have been open to this, but at least we'll keep them mindful of what's going on and just on the backs of how many people that a lot of these things that went look so perfect in the Charlottesville area, what was the catalyst for them? What was the result of it? Who had to sacrifice themselves for this to become possible? Where do you all see meaningful acts of solidarity in our community? 
the the governance of the uh, Charlottesville Area Community Foundation um, is is a huge one. That's being re- run by uh, two women of color, Brandon Gould and Ebony Bug, and um, and they have completely transformed what that organization and foundation is doing. They prioritize uh, people of color and uh, and minority groups and. Um, in ways that large amounts of capital and funding traditionally have not done. And so that is, you know, a multi-million dollar act of Black solidarity. You know, I'll give you a sneak peek as to what I'm um, writing about for next weekend. And that is, you know, early on, there was an immediate need because kids were out of school to feed large amounts of children, right? Thousands and thousands of kids. How do we get food to them? Um, and you saw, you know, some stumbling steps uh, in the initial days and weeks because those school systems were responding to especially African-American community members giving them feedback. And so you have, uh, you know, this very powerful network, especially in the food uh, equity and food justice worlds, you know, of, of Denise Johnson with the city school systems, of Siri Russell with Albemarle County, um, uh, the Office of, of Equity and Inclusion. Um, you have, you know, um, Chantel Bingham as the head of uh, the Food Justice Network. Um, you have, you know, Yolanda Adams and Tamara Wright and Rosa Key, like all of these these are very strong African-American women in the communities giving real-time feedback to the deciders, the people who are saying, send food here, send it at this time, send it in this way, uh, here's our protocols. Um, and so, you know, initially, I think, you know, there was a, a kind of a, a, a mass sort of effort to just get the food out and get it into the communities. And, and very quickly, feedback began to become of, oh, this isn't safe, or this isn't dignified, or this is uh, offensive, or this is, you know, there are various things that kind of came back to that central operating center of, of making those decisions, and they responded in kind, is what I'm hearing. And so, uh, you know, that to me is progress, that that is something that has traditionally not always occurred, um, and that that is very, very, um, it's affirming, it's, it's hopeful. Um, there are ones that happen are happening on grassroots levels as well. Um, you know, Myra Anderson has been a part of starting up the uh, Mask Up effort, and she'll be out this weekend on Saturday uh, at various locations, uh, handing out in a very socially distanced way uh, masks to people. I think they've given out upwards of about 6,000 masks to uh, Black communities and communities of color. That was really born out of seeing these gaps that were occurring and saying to herself that, you know, somebody's got to do it. Why wouldn't it be me? And I just want to add that, and there were just so many groups that were born out of everything that surrounded uh, 2017 that they never went away. And then they've just been able to shift focus because they're once again, we're at a crisis. They know the people who are going to be affected the most and they have put their resources into taking care of those people once again. I hope people read and absorb it. There's a visual component to the whole series that I think really allows for people to access and experience it in ways that, uh, you know, my words are just limited. We've kind of conceptualized this whole project as a multimodal project, right? So that people can access it from different angles. So there's um, a phenomenal artist that we have on board, um, Sahara Clements, who's doing some, some paintings that are amazing to accompany each piece that Jordy writes. We also have an exceptional videographer. He's more than a videographer, um, Lorenzo Dickerson. And it's my belief that, you know, art, I think you can move people emotionally faster. I think we get bombarded with data a lot. 
but you know what really moves people we understand that through music and things like that so how do we take Jordy's words and, and how do we put it all together in a multimodal fashion to really create some action at every level right because that's the idea is to move entire systems and folks who have discretionary power within systems and to celebrate those folks who are navigating systems um, you know, successfully in spite of its brokenness. I'm just really excited about how this project came together. These hard conversations that started about three years ago now that we haven't finished those conversations. It just this has added a new aspect to them. Well, thank you all both so much. I really appreciate your time. Elliot Robinson is the editor of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Jordi Yeager is a local freelance journalist, and Sarad Davenport is the content manager and digital strategist for Vinegar Hill Magazine. You can find Vinegar Hill Magazine at vinegarhillmagazine.com. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, one of our production assistants talked to a client services operator at Simbareas. They're a local organization that supports immigrants and the Latinx community in our area. Across Virginia, 43% of the COVID-19 cases for which we have information about the patient's ethnicity are Latinx. This is a very high rate of incidence, given that Latinx people represent only about 10% of the state's population. Cases broken down by ethnicity is not available for the local Thomas Jefferson Health District, but many Latinx people work in industries where they are likely to be exposed to the virus. Victoria McCullough from Simbareas talks about how the virus is affecting Latinx people in our community. My name is Victoria McCullough. I'm one of two client service operators at Sin Barreras, or Without Barriers in English. It is a nonprofit here in Charlottesville that works to provide immigrant advocacy and sort of legal, legal services or medical services or attach people to resources that they might not otherwise be able to access. We work with a lot of community partners and people will come to us with immigration law questions or just general legal questions. We have a team of like volunteer lawyers that will help them. People can come to us with interpretation or translation requests or maybe they need a ride to immigration court or something like that or they just have a general question about something and we'll kind of connect them with our network of, of resources or partners who are people that just plug into what we do and uh, consent to kind of getting these, these requests and helping these people out. So a lot of what we do will be like direct client service and then case follow-up. How has COVID-19 been impacting folks who are not essential workers um, who are undocumented in Charlottesville? Pretty heavily. Service industry jobs have been really impacted restaurant workers or other direct service providers have seen a huge reduction in their workforce. It's uh, industries that employ a lot of individuals of like varying immigration status. So these are people who are some of the first to lose their jobs. 
It's also people who are maybe less comfortable accessing things like unemployment for a variety of different reasons. And it's also people who the stimulus bill probably, they'll not be able to access that because I think a lot of people don't really know that you can not be a citizen or you can be undocumented, but you're still paying taxes. And so even though the bill is designed to get everybody who pays taxes, they've snuck in a couple of things like you need to have a full social security number or everybody in your family needs to have a social security number. You could have kids who are citizens and you can pay taxes and this stimulus bill won't get to you. And that represents a huge amount of the Latin American population in Charlottesville and across the country. What did healthcare access look like for undocumented folks before the pandemic? And how does it look now? The, the community that we serve largely doesn't have, for instance, like a primary care provider. Earlier this year, passed the public charge rule. It essentially is that if somebody who is undocumented gets on food stamps or something like that, that might block that person from sponsoring their citizenship later down the road. And it's made it really hard for, for instance, parents to ask for like Medicaid for their kids. So I think the, the health situation, especially this year, was really not great for a lot of families who maybe would want to get medical attention, if not even for them, for their kids who as citizens have like that right. The coronavirus pandemic has, I think, just continued to expose that. Just a lot of people who like, if they did have symptoms, really not not knowing kind of where to go to get tested. I guess a lot of people in Charlottesville, but but in particular this group that maybe doesn't speak English super super well or doesn't have like a like a primary physician and are much less likely to have had a history of like consistently going to get medical attention or having that kind of a record. What work has your organization been focusing on during COVID nineteen? Rent assistance. That's that really is the hugest thing. Is is people who don't know how they're going to make rent, and it's just been trying to connect people to resources that might able to alleviate that at least as much as we can as much as we like know about in the area and really trying to get people connected to resources for food or for medical information what are some ways that listeners can support your work if you know about um like any kind of resources that we could connect people to please reach out to us kind of a lot of like information and awareness spreading that would be maybe the best way to uh Help Sin Barreas at this moment in time. You can find Sin Barreas at sinbarreasseville.com. That's S-I-N-B-A-R-R-E-R-A-S-C-V-I-L-L-E.com. They're also on Facebook, and you can call them at 434-531-0104. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. If you have concerns or questions about the coronavirus in our area, tweet us at CVL Soundboard. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Victoria. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>